Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 286, Sex and the Reformation of Manners. I hope you all had a thoroughly good Christmas everyone and are gearing up for a holy new year. As part of your preparations, you might like to slip away under the mistletoe and listen to attitudes about sex in later medieval and the early modern world. I might very quickly share my excitement, if I may, that I am also now a character in a published book. How exciting is that? I'm not a dark lord saving the world, sadly, but I am the next best thing, a sheep. Thank you, children's author Sarah Jane Horowitz. Your book, Dark Lord Clementine, has pride of place over here. And if anyone is in the market for a children's book, I have posted a review on the website for you. Last time we talked a bit about the reformation of manners and how they were affected by the attempt to reform the habits and moral fibre of the nation. And I gave you all fair warning that now at last is the time to talk about sex, baby, and examine the considerable effort spent in regulating the sex lives of the English at the time. If you are very interested in this topic, either seek medical help or go and ask for the help of Martin Ingram, Professor Martin Ingram, who has written a very detailed and fascinating account of the topic in his recent book, Carnal Knowledge. And he starts said book with an anecdote, which I'm going to do the same. Robert Stevens comes home one day and he found the wicket gate of his home secured against him. Now, Robert did not react well to finding the wicket gate of his home secured against him. And he broke through it furiously and went into his house and found John, his journeyman, upon his wife in the kitchen. And in a sudden fume, furiously rammed at said John. John legged it with his hose round his knees, but not fast enough. Robert gave him such strokes that John defiled the place and then getting out into the street and ran away, holding his hosen up with his hands. The account then goes on to explain that his neighbours, marvelling at that sudden adventure, and so all went into the green. You can imagine it, can't you? Oh, uh, oh, look, oh, is that John? Oh, 
in early modern England 1556 as this is. This, however, is not simply a matter of a bit of giggling, rib-digging and a lifetime of snide jokes. This, my friends, is a matter for the law. As a result, Robert and Alice, his wife, spent a whole day in the stocks in the marketplace. And then they had to stay away for more than 20 days. Hang on a second. What? Robert in the stocks? What about John? Where's he? Well, the anecdote tells us quite a lot. John mysteriously managed to get clothes back that he'd left in the house and the court decided that Robert was actually far from innocent in this incident. Something sneaky had been going on. In fact, they concluded that Robert had found out about the peccadilloes going on and so he'd set John up so that he could then take his revenge. And then it is worth noting that women are constantly at the sharp end of sexual regulation, whether or not they have agency in any particular matter, they don't get away with it. Although men were far from immune either, there are double standards, though they are of degree. Finally, justice generally has a lot of leeway. Discretion is a feature of England's justice system at the time. John had been publicly humiliated by being beaten and he defiled the place, it says, which probably involves some sort of involuntary venting of John's personal effluvia. Let me say no more. So the court seems to have decided that, you know, he'd suffered enough. Now, to go back a step, there are lots of courts in 16th century England. There were the secular courts of common law centred on the King's Bench in Westminster Hall in London. Out from there travelled the circuit judges to run regular assize courts in the main county towns to deal with the most important matters of rape and homicide. From there, justice was then delegated to local justices of the peace, who held two types of court. The most important cases were tried at quarter sessions, with grand and petty juries drawn from the locality, and then smaller monthly courts than petty sessions all around the county. And then back in the centre, there were the central equity courts, direct instruments of royal justice in the tradition of Roman law, the courts of Star Chamber, Chancery and Requests, again based at Westminster. So all of those that I have mentioned are secular courts. So now that I have mentioned them, you can largely forget all about them for the moment, except to marvel at just how much justice there is around. And we will have an episode on it at some time in the future, because it is a fascinating topic. Alongside the secular courts was a system of church courts, which is what we're going to think about today because we're thinking about sex. These courts concerned behaviour and morality, and usually we're talking about courts managed by the archdeacon for each diocese. They looked at the behaviour and competence of the officials of the church, as you would expect, but their competence also extended to the behaviour of the parishioners too. The church courts acquired the nicknames of the bawdy courts or the bum courts. And in there, there is a suggestion that the people that ran them were themselves rather disreputable. A charge, actually, that by and large historians have cleared them of. More, these names, bawdy and bum courts, reflected that they tended to end up being a lot about sex. Now, in the church courts, there were two sorts of cases that might end up in front of them. There were suits of instance. Suits of instance were brought by ordinary people of the parish making accusations against each other, and these are very common. Or there might be suits of office. 
suits of office were bought by church officials or church wardens. So I guess church officials could be that top-down enforcement by the church authorities. Otherwise, cases can often reflect either the views of the parish or individuals. Church wardens were caught a little bit in the middle in this process, it has to be said. There was something of a reluctance to wash your dirty linen in public in front of the archdeacon, but it got a little bit embarrassing to go to court every year and say, no problems here, Garth, everything's hunky-dory, because nobody would believe you. So there was pressure to find something at least and look as though you were trying. The purpose of the courts was obviously to punish the guilty, but never forget that the real aim was to bring the sinner to repentance and save their immortal soul. This is not a simple matter of coercion of behaviour in line with a set of social mores. It appears that the courts were, shall we say, sensitive to social order and the ties of deference that held society together, meaning that they were very reluctant to bring big names of the elite to court unless they could absolutely help it. This gave them something of a problem in cases before the Reformation in particular, since men of substance tended to maintain mistresses, sometimes in lodging houses, but quite infrequently in their main residences. It was a practice in London that was carried on much down the, further down the social scale as well. Now, contemporaries didn't mince their words as far as this was concerned. They simply described the practice as keeping whores, so they felt it set a poor example to everyone. That aside, however, the courts were also keen to give the accused a chance to clear their name. So in cases where there was no proof and the accused did not confess, the test was compurgation. Compurgation meant that the accused had to bring along a bunch of neighbours who would swear to their innocence. And once that was done, the court ordered this offence was spoken of no more. The air, as it were, was cleared of the scent of corruption, evildoing and malicious gossip. As if, I can hear you say. But such was the principle. Now, in our cynical world, we might view this as a laughably simple process, resulting merely in the passing around of a few pints of beer later to get round. But the evidence appears to be that it was anything but a simple process. People were very careful not to swear to people's innocence that they didn't feel confident about. And a minority actually managed to complete it, often preferring to spill the beans and carry out the penance instead. So there is a bit of historiography attached to all of this, which I think is probably the same as we went through last week. The now dominant story saw the Reformation as a watershed. It painted a picture of church courts that were by 1500 pretty moribund as agents of sexual regulation. Then along came the Reformazione, which shook things up. Reformers viewed sex and marriage differently, rejecting the existing idea that celibacy should be the model for all, and that marriage was therefore principally a vehicle for the avoidance of sin, given that not all of us are up to the challenge of celibacy. The reformers took a much more exalted view of marriage and expected more from it. Ironically, they rejected the idea that marriage was a sacrament, actually finding no evidence for it in the Bible. But nonetheless, they exalted the idea of marriage, household and family as a set of institutions fundamental to the health of the Commonwealth. This is not just an English thing. This is a European trend leading to the Calvinist tradition of the reformation of life and a drastic remodelling of church courts. The Catholic Church also looked at its own disciplinary institutions, which included a variety of Inquisition courts, particularly in Southern Europe. 
So the idea is that it's the Reformation which causes a focus on the Reformation of manners in the later 16th and 17th century, as far as sex is concerned in particular. One of the problems in challenging this assumption is that the earlier records are predictably much more scarce. So it's a bit difficult to identify whether, as many historians assumed, it's because there was less activity, or just a question that fewer documents actually survived. But more recently, in England at least, a different story has emerged. What first of all becomes clear is that there is nothing new about sustained campaigns of moral regulation. In Leicester, in 1467, for example, there was an elaborate ordinance against unlawful games, scolds, quarrellers, brothels and bawdry, and there was a follow-up ordinance in 1484. In Coventry, there were ordinances in 1445, 1474, 1490, 1492. And it seems that in 1495, in areas where records survive, there was an extraordinary amount of cases, in some cases without parallel before or after the Reformation. A study of London courts found a dramatic peak under the Yorkists and Henry VII, in 1490, 1,515 prosecutions were processed after another previous peak of 1,305 in 1472. So, it appears there was nothing intrinsically unusual about a focus on moral behaviour, including sexual behaviour. Court cases for sexual discipline before 1530, and therefore before the Reformation is the point, cover a wide variety, of which the biggest single group was the broad description of incontinence, which is a nice phrase. Inability to keep it within the relevant article of clothing, I suppose, is the super summary. But the focus within there is on two areas. Adultery, so illicit sex within marriage, and clerical celibacy. Clerical celibacy appears to be in something of a problem. And of course, it's a problem which has a historiography all of its own. Previously, it had been assumed that the fulminations of the Catholic reformers like Collet reflected reality and that priests were always at it. And then in the revisionism of the 1990s and the noughties, it was decided there was no evidence that parishioners were up in arms about their priests playing away, or rather, there was a happy sort of acceptance that, you know, when a priest loves a woman, he can do no wrong. And as long as he treated her well, that was fine. Good luck to you. And so, as ever, the pendulum swings back. Further analysis makes it clear that parishioners in particular were a good deal more censorious than this. After all, priests were committing a sin, and the priest was supposed to be acting as an intermediary for the parishioner with God. So in wills, for example, there is a constant refrain asking for an honest priest to offer up prayers for the dead. Wrongdoing priests could be forced to the periphery of local society, like the vicar of Haverhill, who, for the incontinence of his vicious living, he was driven from fullborn. Thomas More grumpily complained that parishioners took unworthy delight in deriding priests that fell by the wayside, which shows a certain sort of arrogance. But often, actually, there was some reticence in bringing incidents to public light, or a reluctance at least to make a direct accusation. So in one circuit of visitations by the Archdeacon at Sproxton, there is a flat statement by the church warden, which you can imagine being accompanied by embarrassed shared glances, that the vicar has a young woman in his house who is pregnant at the public voice and labour fame. 
In another, there's an initial straightforward statement that the rector at Thornham had a Joan Thackham in his house, initially simply saying that the parishioners suspect no ill of her, save that she is not a little proud and gives the proud words. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? Let's move on. Until there's a large snapping sound and a bit more than appears that Joan was a common whore who lives within the rectory and keeps there a common tavern. She is also a common scold. The rector lives incontinently with her. Mm, OK, that's a little clearer then. The visitation ordered that Joan must leave the rector's house and in general late 15th century church courts put a lot of effort into dealing with the problem of clerical celibacy. The summary of cases, however, concluded that only 5% of them each year appeared to be about clerical incontinence, and so historians concluded it wasn't really a big problem that had previously been claimed to be. Now, it's recognised that people were reluctant to bring the matter up in visitations, not least because the church was very wary about bringing its own clergy into disrepute. So the problem would have been much more common than thought, and that no, indeed, villagers were by no means relaxed and forgiving about such transgressions. Courts also dealt with the issues of prostitution, and the common rubric was that pre-Reformation courts were lax and relatively unconcerned with the problem. The most infamous centre of prostitution was the Bishop of Winchester's Southwark Stews, but it's worth noting that particularly in provincial towns, prostitution before the Reformation was relatively common. I'm not sure what I expected to find, to be, to be honest, but a common model apparently in the 15th century was that of the female tapster offering sexual services at inns and alehouses. One study in York linked the sex trade in provincial towns to a process of increasing hostility to women being involved at all in trade. So unable to make a living in trade, this forced some women into the sex trade. The study found that street walking was the norm rather than organised activities in brothels. From other towns, though, a broader model appears where sex was available at a series of ill-regulated households, sometimes run by a husband and wife team. The picture, then, is that before the Reformation, while the Southwark Stews were the biggest and most obvious centre of the sex trade, it was prevalent in most provincial towns. It's just that unlike Southwark, towns, and indeed the City of London itself, did not go down the route of licensed brothels. One of the contributory factors was the clergy's use of sex workers was also a significant part of the trade's customers. So once again, it was a difficult issue for the church courts to deal with. Sadly, there is very little survival of the voice of the sex workers involved. There are snippets that come through. Unsurprisingly, it's clear that many women were forced against their will into the trade. In 1473, Ellen Botler complained she had been kidnapped by Thomas Bowd, forcing her into the trade by threatening to take her to court in a separate case. Sex workers were often excommunicated and therefore denied the mass, and there are cases where such women are caught and prosecuted for taking communion nonetheless. Unsurprisingly, it seems that sex workers, though clearly vilified by society and the law, still saw themselves as part of a community and wished to be part of it. We're not usually talking about defiant rebels here. What is clear as the proverbial bell, though, is how prostitution was seen by society as a whole, the very language of common whore and bored, and the frequency with which it was used is evidence enough 
such as last time when we heard about Friedswood and all the rest of it. And the vigour with which defamation suits were brought to church when accusations were made also testifies to it. But it's also clear that the church courts were equally determined to limit or eradicate the trade. It's just that it appeared to be beyond them. It was institutionalised in the stews and endemic around Westminster. But in 1512, for example, 200 cases were brought in the Southwark Church Courts alone. And this was only one of the church courts involved. Secular courts were also involved, the King's Bench, local manorial courts as well as the church courts. They were clearly supported by jurors, church wardens, constables, local informants, including women. And the very clear image is of ordinary people affronted by the sex trade and keen to see offenders brought to court and punished. If you were caught of a sexual crime, moving away from just prostitution specifically, the normal principle of punishment was shame, to be shamed and humiliated in front of your neighbours and community. I suppose it's reasonably obvious to say that such punishments would have been less effective unless the activity was considered shameful. But of course, there's also the humiliation of being forced to stand out and the feeling of expulsion from the community. The general trend was for a general, gradual lessening of the severity of punishments over time. Centuries before our time, periods of fasting were considered suitable penances for adultery, along with the application of the rod. And in the 14th century, those found guilty of adultery appear often to have been whipped, and the practice continued into the 15th century. Here is advice from the Diocese of Lincoln about how to impose a sentence. It ordered that the culprit should... At each corner of the churchyard, humbly kneeling, receive from the curate of the same church a whipping with a rod according to the custom. During the first half of the 16th century, up to the Reformation, the practice of whipping was getting gradually rarer and had mainly disappeared by the time of the Reformation. You have to kind of wonder why. It does not seem to have been because lay people objected to whipping as wrong per se, or at least there's little evidence of that of people getting softer. It could be that more and more people did object because by the early 16th century with the Yorkist vagrancy laws the whip was beginning to be established as the standard form of punishment for vagrants. So punishments in such a way began to be seen as more and more extreme a form of humiliation given the way that society felt about vagrants as immoral and idle creatures rather than poor unfortunates. But also, as secular courts became more important, and this is probably a key point, the distinction between secular punishments and church courts began to harden and a distinction to be made. So this was that the church courts could not touch life, limb or property. Such sentences were to be the preserve of secular courts alone. And therefore, church courts were probably forced to moderate their sentences. I started the discussion of punishments with the general statement that shaming was the normal method of punishment and then started going on about whipping, which was, of course, humiliating, but, you know, a little more than that. My point was that by the time the Reformation rolls around, corporal punishment had probably finally had its day and would not be revived by the Reformation. So, shaming became more and more important. The basic format had strong elements of drama and performance, 
The most common was for the culprit to walk through the parish in front of a cross on a Sunday or a major feast day, holding a candle. Back to the Game of Thrones thingy. Then they'd stand or kneel in front of the church during mass, which is sounding awfully like going to school in the seventies and standing in the corner, though obviously without the fornicating bit. Often the penitents would then have to go barefoot or barelegged. Women were made to leave their hair unbound. Men to perform penance in a shirt, or women in a smock. All of these things are humiliating breaches of the social rules, which remove the dignity of the culprit. The severity of the punishment would vary according to the severity of the crime. So let us start with a bit of fornication, shall we? By fornication in this instance, I mean fornication in the technical sense of sex outside marriage, rather than a simple Bible-thumping fulmination of disapproval. Where this involved a couple who then promised to get married, the penance might take place entirely in the relative safe environment of the church. Adultery, i.e., specifically sex within marriage, of course, tended to be treated much more harshly than fornication, and incest, of course, much more seriously than both. In towns, punishments might be ratcheted up by the use of carting, which you probably guess means being pulled through the town on a cart. It carried with it high visibility. The people of the town would inevitably gather for the fun and sympathetically throw stuff at the culprits. It was an age when you needed to take your fun where you could find it, in any form it came. Now, I thought I would finish with an anecdote or illustration, rather, which comes from Loughborough. Finish this bit, that is to say. Now, this is something of a proud moment for me. I have subjected you to a barrage of irrelevant references to Loughborough over the years, purely because it was my hometown. Now, at last, I can obey the proper rules of podcasting and actually make it relevant. A tear of joy drips on my keyboard as I type. So, let me take you to the teeming cosmopolis that is Loughborough around 1526 to 7. I like this example, actually, because it shows you the full gamut of these things. But also, look out for the fact that people didn't necessarily take these things lying down. So, to Elizabeth Everingham and William Banks. Banks was a widower of Loughborough. Churchwardens Richard Greensmith, William Coates and John Syerson explained that William had kept Elizabeth and that they'd had a child. Elizabeth, it turns out, was his wife's brother's daughter. Also, she was her godmother, and he kept her in his wife's days, and yet doth continue to ill example of others. Banks came to court, and he confessed, and he was ordered to stay away from Elizabeth and do penance. This penance was a severe one, the whipping at the four corners of the churchyard at the hands of the curate version. Banks at this point then tried to escape his punishment, claiming to have already been punished elsewhere. This ploy won him but a short breather, because it turned out that yes, he had done penance elsewhere, but that was for another first child, and now he'd had another, so Elizabeth and William were not showing themselves notably penitent then. William then tried a tricky legal way out of the problem, which is a very Tudor approach. He managed to get a letter from another court. Tudors did this. They loved litigation because given the overlapping complexity of the courts, they could play off one against the other. But in this case, whack, whack, oops. No way out, pal. No jurisdiction in this case. Curses. 
The court had now had enough and went nuclear. It excommunicated Banks and, very unusually, got help from the secular courts to throw him in jail. And so finally he submitted. Barefoot, bare-legged, bare-headed, rosary in one hand, candle in the other, he was paraded three times round Loughborough Market. Now I can tell you that Loughborough Market can be a busy place, so maybe he might have avoided notice. Not a bit of it. A summoner walked in front with a white rod, shouting at the top of his voice what was going on, explaining his penance just to make sure nobody missed it. For his misliving and his great disobedience unto Christ's church. Back to prison he went, and then performed a series of penitential acts in his home parish, including being beaten on the hands and head by a curate with a black rod. Then back to prison again and a similar ordeal the following Sunday, then a special court was held in the parish church and Banks was forced on his knees to beg for readmittance. Everybody by this stage had turned out to watch and when he was released the record, possibly with a big bit of exaggeration for effect, noted that a thousand Christian people crying out publicly, Our Lord God save the Bishop of Lincoln and all his, for this man is well reformed to grace a good example of all of us. Right, hopefully you have something of a flavour of the border courts of the late 15th and early 16th century. We have now seen that the idea of a reformation of manners is far from being a 16th century or reformation phenomenon. By 1500, the church's campaign was less an attempt to control misbehaviour, actually, and more an attempt to impose on the laity the discipline and authority it tried to impose on the clergy. Far from being relaxed and laid back, church courts worked hard to instil discipline in their parishioners, and there were periods of furious activity, particularly under the Yorkists at the end of the 15th century. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. By 1500, the pre-Reformation church faced a few core problems with its programs of moral correction. As we've mentioned, men of status tended to keep mistresses quite publicly. Secondly, more casual and opportunistic forms of adultery were frequent. A common story, for example, was sex with maidservants. Since a very high proportion of young women went into domestic service before they were married, they were potentially very vulnerable. This is a major problem. And thirdly, the trade in sex was relatively widespread, both in provincial towns and more famously in the Southwark Jews and Westminster. And fourthly was the extent of clerical immorality. By 1500, there had been a significant decline in the severity of penances and secular courts had begun to restrict the severity too, beginning to emphasise their monopoly of physical punishment. Money fines begin to appear often as well, rather than public spectacle. The number of prosecutions seemed to fall off in the early 16th century too. There's a distinct breather. The breather was quite short-lived, in the 1520s and 1530s, there's a clear tendency for some form of physical pain to come back into the equation. 
Whipping does seem to revive in some places temporarily, but it's more a question of other violent forms of public shaming. So one of the most widely used was the cucking stool or ducking. So on to the end of the traditional procession might be added a further humiliation, with the culprit immersed fully in water. The practice was revived of cutting women's hair, which had first been prescribed in 1382 but fallen out of practice, and the idea of sewing letters or symbols into the condemned's clothing as a sign of their crime appeared. Largely, maybe these appeared because the old methods didn't seem to be working. The obvious question is why? This was pre-Reformation, so we have to look elsewhere, and the obvious conclusion to which we might jump is the start of the rise of homelessness and vagrancy. It was generally thought that vagrants were sexually promiscuous, that they would sell their body for cash, food or a place to stay. And this link between sexual transgression and poverty would be a powerful and abiding theme through the century and beyond, whether or not it it proved to be true. In the 1530s and 1540s, during the break with Rome and the growing disruption of the ideas of the Reformation, probably had the initial impact of actually reducing the number of indictments. The church courts in particular were unsurprisingly rather demoralised and less active, though secular courts may have taken up some of the slack. If an arbitrary date for a change is needed, and arbitrary dates are a fun feature of history so that we can argue about them, 1546 might be a good one to pick for a new determination to reform morality and behaviour. In this year at last, the Suffolk stews were suppressed and formed part of a growingly ferocious campaign in the late 1540s and 1550s, especially in its peak in 1550, with numbers of cases not seen in some places since the 1470s. One of the outcomes of the campaign in Edwardian London was the creation of Brideswell Hospital. Brideswell Hospital was founded in Henry VIII's old palace. It was part of a strategy to provide a different support for different needs in London, so a network of hospitals. By 1552, St Bartholomew's had been refounded for the sick poor. St Thomas's Hospital in Southwark had been refounded for the aged. Christ's Hospital had been reformed for orphans. Brideswell Hospital was a response to the rising tides of homelessness for what was called, as we've said many times before, the idle poor, the sturdy beggars. At one level it was to be a training establishment with materials its inmates could use to develop new skills. That sounds rather too fluffy though, it was clearly also a house of correction. But it was part of a process to inquire and examine all manner of suspicious houses such as inns, taverns, gambling houses and dancing houses. The reason for said inquiry was to remove and take to Brideswell all idle, lazy ruffians, haunters of stews, vagabonds and sturdy beggars or other suspected persons and men and women of ill name and fame. It was inherently expected that these people would have loose sexual morals and that, in the contemporary parlance, harlots, boards and whoremongers would be among the inmates to be reformed. In the 1570s, the governors of Brideswell would target brothel keepers. There was a study that reconstructed what the structure was of sex working in London after the end of the Southwark Stews and it gave evidence about about a 100 brothels of various sizes, some of them simply letting out two or three rooms for sex workers to use. 
Brideswell struggled to gain complete acceptance from other authorities, but it did provide a systematised reinforcement of policing, particularly with regards to vagrants. Brideswell doesn't seem an attractive place to us now. I doubt it did then either for its inmates, but the records of the 1560s and 1570s show an enthusiastic support from local people. It tapped into grassroots concerns and emotions. Brideswell kept going through Mary's years, and so did the focus on sexual, sexual regulation, despite the religious disruption and disputes of her reign. As the years of Elizabeth's reign progressed, the church focused hard on the visitation system to increase its effectiveness. As part of that, the role of the churchwarden then became ever more central, and indictments increasingly clearly reflect a parish view rather than just an official diocesan view. The church court system increasingly sought to embed the idea that the reform of morality was at the heart of the Reformation, a claim at which they were quite successful, helped by the closing of the Bishop of Winchester's Jews, but fiercely contested by Catholics, who claimed that a Reformation based on the king's lust for Anne Boleyn had instead unleashed a torrent of vice. But the focus of the Elizabethan church courts was therefore shifting. Partly this was about the issue of reforming a church and their parishioners in a new doctrine, so the focus was now much more about attendance, to drive out recusancy, to make sure that all were participating as far as possible in the new church, participation, of course, being the core principle of the new church. They needed to make sure all parishes were properly equipped, clergy properly prepared to re perform the liturgy laid down in the Book of Common Prayer, and to preach as the Reformed faith demanded. So with all that going on, it's remarkable that church wardens had time to focus on the Reformation of Manners, but there's no doubt it did indeed remain a focus. Church wardens were encouraged to make sure issues didn't come to the church courts if they could be dealt with outside, but let us not be fooled into thinking this suggests a softening of attitudes. It does not. With the range of change to be achieved and the pressure of poverty and vagrancy, a return to corporal punishment was mooted. But it fell foul of the common law doctrine of punishment again. And also, it was recognised that punishment that was too severe could be counterproductive. The idea, after all, was to generate repentance, not resentment. Nonetheless, as Elizabeth's reign progressed, punishments did tend to become more severe, and it was likely to be those use of other forms of punishments like carting and ducking. But the focus changed in other ways too, so the rejection of the idealisation of virginity and compulsory clerical celibacy led to the ideal of extolling marriage. It took me a while to get my head around why this then led to a focus on fornication and premarital sex rather than adultery. But I think the idea was that sex should be within marriage, so that anything undermining that was to be fought. So the focus tended now, rather than on adultery, tended to be on fornication in church courts. Clerical immorality, meanwhile, became a much lesser problem. Clearly there were transgressors, but what had been one of the biggest problems before the Reformation now become one of the smallest. This also had an impact on the provincial sex trade, which was greatly reduced. And the established situation of tapsters offering sex through alehouses largely disappeared in provincial towns, partly because a wave of legislation was produced regulating alehouses and there was a concerted focus on the issue by secular borough courts. The sex trade categorically did not go away, however, 
and the end of regulated sex trade in Southwark's Jews simply drove it underground into those multiple small-scale concerns we mentioned earlier. What of the Puritan Revolution, then? The ultimate expression of the Calvinist ideas that many English Protestants had been exposed to from Europe was of a godly society of civil magistrates and church authorities working hand-in-hand to reform religious observance and personal morality. Ideas such as these came from clerical writings, from Marian exiles, but also from a nascent public space of cheap pamphlets and debate. This public space is a squalling infant at this time, but with the growth of literacy and the media of print, a birth can probably said to be sort of happening. It's a subject for another day later in the reign of Elizabeth. All I'm saying for the moment is that the hotter type of Protestant, the godly, the Puritan, did have a model from the continent in particular they were keen to follow and promote. But in the 16th century, these ideals were rarely achieved in England. Rarely did Puritans fully capture English parish life and were very usually very much on the margins. There were exceptions. At Bury St Edmunds in 1579, a group of godly justices produced a code of exceptionally disagreeable penalties for sin. To be tied to a whipping post for 24 hours, with 30 stripes well laid on until the blood came. By the end of the 16th century, the challenge from the Puritans was strong, and their very fervour legislated, though, against the dominance over behaviour by secular courts, because Puritans disputed the authority of secular courts over what they saw as spiritual matters. But what you get is this rather curious mix in England, which is really rather handy for controlling zealotry. The growing strength of statute law meant that if you were a Puritan who wanted to ratchet up increasingly punitive and far-ranging laws regulating moral behaviour to try and bring around the perfect state as found in Geneva, there was sadly no option but to go through Parliament. And while there is indeed plenty of legislation, the House of Commons was an arena where it was by and large impossible for zealots to gain control. Its composition was simply too varied. Now, you could try to just hijack the existing extensive mechanisms at a local level. But here, as we've seen, it was well established that secular courts held the authority on physical punishments and often overlapping jurisdictions meant that the church court judgments were simply overridden. It usually proved impossible for a group of zealous Puritans to hold a community in thrall. There was a brief moment in 1650 when the zealots would gain control of Parliament, And the result, or one of the results, was the Adultery Act and the death penalty for adultery. Through the Civil War, finally it seemed that the Puritans had gained their victory. Even then, the discretion in the system defeated them. Almost no courts or juries would allow the law to be applied or produce convictions. I think we've done enough then. I should summarise. I've tried to give a flavour of the sorts of things the English were worried about and tried to control and how they went about it. I hope you have a flavour of it. The concern was by no means a result of the Protestant Reformation, still less of a specifically Puritan Reformation, concerns stretched back into the 15th and 14th century. The records show periodic crackdowns fuelled by some sort of periodic moral panic. In the 1470s, under the Yorkists, it might well have been driven by a desire to present themselves as the party of law and order and moral probity, given their slightly dodgy legitimacy. 
but there were sustained crackdowns also in the 1490s and early 1530s. There is no doubt that one of these periodic crackdowns coincided with the Reformation. Partly, new religious ideas changed the focus of the Reformation of manners, but the changes also need to be seen in the context of the other moral panic of the time, the upswing in population, poverty, vagrancy. This led to a panic about social order and crime, a fear of increased disorder. It was this that was also probably largely responsible for an increase in the severity of penances in the later 16th century. It's not to say the Reformation had no impact, it clearly did. Some changes were incidental, such as the reduction of clerical immorality with the removal of compulsory clerical celibacy. Other changes were about the focus of the Reformation of manners on sex outside marriage rather than adultery, on the separation of the sacred and profane space and activities, and crucially, on Sabbatarianism, on keeping the Lord's Day free from unlawful games and making sure people went to church. Of all concerns, this was probably the Puritan's greatest. The Puritan Reformation of manners did exist, but was merely one of many forms of Reformation of manners, or many types, over years and centuries. And the strength of secular jurisdiction tended to limit its severity. I thought I might indulge myself by ending with another anecdote. This is about Jones Squire, who committed adultery with Harold Biddle. He was discovered in flagrante, but tried to hide in the chimney in the kitchen. And there he was taken by Richard Pepper, churchwarden, Thomas Duckett, Thomas Kilbane, constable, Thomas Reynolds, Thomas Jenkinson, William the Weaver, Christopher Allsop and William Parker. The picture here is of representatives of the parish dealing together with a transgression against the social rules of the day. Throughout the discussion about social disorder and sexual regulation, it's quite clear that individuals, whatever their level in society, usually accepted and lived according to these rules. The entire system relied on peer indictment. People were outraged when others wore caps that were not appropriate to their station, for example. Normal parishioners were outraged by sex workers. And, as in the example above, all levels of society worked together to reinforce the rules. However, it is also impossible to avoid the conclusion that economic change produced winners and losers, the impact of population growth, of poverty and vagrancy, all took their toll on community cohesion. Because moral reform increasingly focused on the poor. There were assumptions made. Officers and parishioners assumed that with vagrancy would come crime and sexual promiscuity, whether or not it did. Although most levels of society bought into the standards of the day, much of the pressure for reform came from, indeed from church authorities and the elite of the parish, and there was a shrinking of the opportunities available for the poorer classes whose lives came under so much economic pressure and social control. The picture we are left with is of a society under pressure, facing its demons, but still very much centred around a sense of community, shared values and around the parish. Now we have had a rash of social stuff and I feel that is enough and we should return to the world of high politics, just because really, and anyway, it's Elizabeth and we all love Elizabeth. I confess I look back on my social episodes and I think, well, mm, you know, it's all a bit random. There's so much I haven't covered.
but hopefully we can return or I can add them to the members library. Either way, next time we are back to an extraordinary life of Queen Elizabeth I. Cannot quite promise when, but early in the new year in all probability. Until then, gentle listeners, thank you very much for your kind attention. Good luck and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 